We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet, the Yagara and Turbal people of the Mianjin Nation, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Marvels, the podcast where we dissect, disembowel, and destroy Marvel's Ooh. pop culture paragons through a queer feminist lens. <laughs> I'm Lisa, and my twisted sister is Dana. Hello there, our luminous listeners. There is no denying that superheroes influence and inspire people from all communities, so we want to explore, as we have been exploring every week, what the representation is, if any, available to viewers from outside a straight male lens. Who better to explore this than your favorite discourse dykes? So what are we doing this this episode, Dana? Okay, this episode, we are looking at The Avengers 2012. It's going to be a long episode. We have so much to say. Yeah, I think... Like, I remember this being the movie that solidified my love of the MCU. But looking mm. back, I was such a kid. Like, and now I'm like, ooh, there's a lot here that I'm thinking and reflecting upon. I'm not a huge fan of. <laughs> For once, the queer aspects of it, for me, outweighed the feminist aspects. Yeah, we have that a bit with our Cap episode as well. Yeah, that's true. But I, I think, yeah, this is the one that the whole fandom, in fact, just lost their minds. And this is where all of the hype came from and all of the shipping and all of the, you know, external, yeah, engaging with the media. So it'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. I think we got lots to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. There are a couple things I want to mention off the top. Um, The first one is more textual and the second one is more contextual. So I don't have the words to talk about this with any nuance, so forgive my uh, clumsiness and general nervousness, but while we're having discussions of feminism and queer subtext, we also need to have discussions concerning race. Yeah, I agree. As as two white women, we recognise our privilege and we personally believe it's our responsibility to use our privilege in a way that can support marginalised communities. We recommend engaging with perspectives of Marvel fans of colour and acknowledge that we may not be able to engage with all the complexities of um, issues of race. Still, we'd like to talk about it a little bit as diversity in movies, particularly the MCU, is exactly what we're asking for. Very well said. Uh, A thing I've noticed about these films is that they're a primarily white cast with male protagonists and usually there is one black male character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in Iron Man, we have Rhodey. In Thor, we have Heimdall. And in the first Avenger, we have Gabe Jones. We can argue that the first Avenger does worse in representation of people of color and specifically black characters. Not because it's set in World War II, but because they don't give Gabe and Jim Morita many lines and they're relegated to side characters, unlike Rhodey, who is a main character. Yeah. Out of the five main characters in Iron Man 1, we have Tony, Rhodey, Pepper, Obi, and Raza. There are two people of colour, and one of those, Raza, played by Farhan Tahir, is a villain. Yeah, and getting into the whole vilifying of the Middle East is Mm. typecasting of roles. There's so many things on there. And considering that was like, what was it, Obama era, just past Mm -hmm. Bush era, and still within the... Um, Iraq war I think or yeah absolutely that whole playing that whole role of vilifying the Middle East even more mm. <sighs> while in the first Avenger we do see Gabe and Marita's roles defined in the film we have Gabe is a linguist and Marita is a communication specialist no attention is drawn to the fact that Steve's unit uh, which is the invaders as they were known in World War II is an integrated unit and when integration wasn't a thing at the time 
and the policy for segregation in the military stayed in place until 1948. Japanese Americans were only allowed to serve in the military after 1944 due to the racial prejudice from the bombing of Pearl Harbor. I know, and we could even, like, talking about the history and talking about, you know, the camps that were literally made to contain, um, yeah, contain people during the wars and keep them separate from white America. <laughs> None of that has been addressed and all kind of, it's just kind of this this rosy coloured glasses depiction of the past and doesn't do a lot of justice. Yeah, by not addressing it, they're kind of implying that racism doesn't exist in the MCU. It's precisely. Yeah, the only instance we have of this not being the case is in the factory where Steve rescues the prisoners and Dum Dum looks at Marita and asks, are we taking everybody? And Marita's like, mm. uh, I'm from Fresno. Like, he he pulls out his uh, dog tags. Yeah. It's really fucked. But, like, yeah. that's the only instance of it being, like... Even mentioned. But... Even mentioned. Um, while these characters are amazing, Marvel could have done a lot more to make more prominent characters of colour. They could have chosen to have any one of the main characters be played by actors of colour. Uh, like Peggy, for instance, she's English, and there wasn't much uh, racial segregation in England at the time like there, like there was in the US. I'm not saying that racism didn't exist, but if Peggy was a woman of colour, having a mixed-race couple between her and Steve, as well as having her own Agent Carter TV series, would have been pretty cool. Yeah, imagine imagine if they've made her, like, British Indian or something, and that would be really, really cool. Yeah, that would have been an interesting take. Um, in Avengers, we again have one prominent black character, Fury, who is capable, tough, and smart. It's the first time we see him really expanded as a character after having cameos in three films. But it honestly, like, pains me so much to give Joss Whedon credit for that. <laughs> yeah. Was it the good groundwork and um, and John Favreau, like, pinning yeah. the, all the overhead and planning into it? Or was it a Joss Whedon choice, personally? Ugh. I think... Mm. John Favreau. <laughs> yeah, I think so. He had such a, a big dream for this. and Yeah. Oh, I know. Okay. Also, I need to mention Agent Sitwell, who is played by Maximiliano Hernandez, and who we, in our Sexuality yeah. Thor episode, we wrongly identify him as white. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I think that was my fault. I think I was on a tangent there. Yeah. Um, he gets next to no screen time in either Thor or Avengers, and then he's villainized and killed off in The Winter Soldier. Oh, tell me about it. That's... And killed off, like, in a way that there's just no coming back for that. Like, yeah. apparently there was for Clark Gregg playing Coulson. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's just no coming back from being thrown in front of a truck. No, there isn't. <laughs> Unless they did something like... Um, like they did with Zola, and they put his mind into a bank of computers. Oh, uh, let's... No. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, just continuing on. There are no prominent characters of colour in Hulk, and the two women of colour we see in The Incredible Hulk are written out of the film or killed off. I think as well, like, there's a big women of colour problem in Marvel, mm. and they only started addressing this. I think the first characters I can think of off the top of my head we've got in Ant-Man and the Wasp, there's a, a villain, again, ghost, who yeah. is Ghost. And I have to say, she's quite well-written, and we'll talk about her when we do that episode. She but has problems. There she has problems. a lot of problems. Yeah. And the fact that, again, like, we're finally getting a woman of colour, and she's a villain. Uh, then there was, we have Valkyrie, of course, in yes. Thor 2, and she's excellent, and we'll talk about her in the Thor 2 episode. And I believe... Thor 3. 
Oh, yep, sorry. Thor 3. Wow, I'm just forgetting the Dark World exists, which I think everyone collectively <laughs> should decide to do as a group of people. And there was there was one more, um, thinking Maria from Captain Marvel as well, and she takes that um, side character support role. Yes. But she is a large part of that movie. She is, and she is a huge part of Carol's connection to Earth, etc. Yeah. And but the fact that all of those movies are, I believe, like late 2010s movies. Yeah, I think Ant-Man and the Wasp was like 2015. Oh, oh was that Ant-Man was 2000? Yeah, I think Ant-Man and the Wasp was definitely after Ragnarok. Um, oh. So 2018 for Ant-Man and the Wasp, Ragnarok was, I believe, 2017, my last year of uni. And I mean, sorry. Thor Ragnarok, yeah, was 2017, and then The Wasp was 2018, and Captain Marvel was 2019. And Black Panther was 2018. Oh, that's true. We are forgetting Black Panther had lots of strong, prominent female characters, women of colour, which was excellent. Mm. Yes, but all of the late 2010s. Mm. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> Personal pet peeve. These movies are, for the most part, overwhelmingly white, and considering Blade came out in 1998, which mm. is the first Marvel Studios film, and we will cover it later in this season, there's, like, really no excuse for why there wasn't more diversity. But it is worth pointing out that both Heimdall and Fury were white in the comics, and the directors and casting director chose black men to play these characters. Mm-hmm. Marvel has a history of casting black actors to play white characters, which is very cool, but yes. unfortunately sometimes doesn't hit the mark, as we'll discuss in Daredevil. Uh, and those poor, also the poor actors just face an onslaught and a slew of hate that Marvel Studios does really oh, nothing yeah. to protect or um, to even... Um, disregard or even to just like say no to the people who are doing that it's not a decision made for you like <sighs> marvel studios just sits back and lets their actors couple of that flack for taking mm. these parts mm. considering that the statistics for representation in the marvel films are still very poor i found a forbes article that breaks down the representation of people of color in these films and says that black characters make up only 20% of the characters in the MCU, and this is inclusive of Black Panther. <sighs> it's fucked. Yeah. Which leads me to my next point. Why the fuck wasn't Rhodey in this movie? Why wasn't he in the Avengers? <laughs> Why wasn't he? Is, he? He's, he's got the suit. Machine. Yeah, he's got the suit at this point. Like, it's an invasion. Like, he's in the Air Force. Why wouldn't he be yeah, there? Yeah, where is the Air Force in this film? Like, where is the military? Where is any... <laughs> After all that bullshit about, like, in Iron Man and even Captain America about the military, like, where are they in this They'll film? be there to protect everybody. Don't worry about it. You guys don't have to do anything. No, they weren't. Were you going to mention your second part about fuck off Hawkeye? Oh, fuck off Hawkeye right out of there. Although, like, points are made for Hawkeye, so, so like... Oh, I will talk about it. I, will, I don't yeah, think, okay. like, if we were going to substitute a character, I would say Hawkeye. But if we yeah. were to add another character in and keep the main six, but plus seven would yeah. be Rhodey. Yeah. And I think um, you, ha- you had something in the notes which is like, just fuck off Hawkeye. Why isn't Rhodey here? And I, 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 I don't want Rhodey to substitute in for Hawkeye's plotline no. because it'd be so uncomfortable to watch Rhodey playing, like, the brainwashed by the genocidal genocidal evil Loki to do shit. Like yes, <laughs> I'd be so uncomfortable watching yeah. that. Um, and I believe as well, uh, another thing I'd like to talk about with race and everything as well, we've talked a lot about um, uh, depictions of black characters in media, 
But there's also, we know First Nations people who are not getting portrayed at all. And I, as the resident of expert, as you put it, there's a really clumsy metaphor they try to make with Loki uh, that he is like a stand-in for internalized racism, particularly in Thor 1 with the whole Jotunheim thing, being snatched away as a baby and indoctrinated to a seer culture while his home is conquered and stripped of resources. But I hate that the only person or avenue they're trying to tell this story through of, it, of Indigenous peoples in the area and their struggles is watching Tom Hiddleston, the pastiest white boy from Brit- like from England, who is the biggest colonizer in the world, to cry about it. There's no voices of colour, there's no First Nation people's input, nothing, and it's just disgusting. <laughs> and that's why I love Ragnarok, and when we get to it, we're going to talk about it and rehash it all again. But thank you, because the director, Taika Waititi, yes. a Maori man, was able to make better points about colonialism and Asgard. Yeah, but it's just... I mean, that's the thing, is that um, these these movies, while they do sometimes have characters of colour in them, um, they're mostly written, written and directed by white men. That's what I'm getting at. Uh, Mm. So that leads me on to my next point. Uh, We see a lot of movies, especially superhero movies, where white male and directors or auteurs basically get told to go wild and it turns into a mediocre shit show. Mm. But they get invited back again and again. Like Joss Whedon went on to direct Age of Ultron and then worked on one of the DC Justice League movies, which was also a piece of shit. What happened there with the Justice League movie was Zack Snyder was directing it and they had a tragedy in the family, so they got Joss Whedon in to do the reshoots and finish it off. And he just wrecked it. The latest thing in in Twitter that's been going crazy for all the DC fans is they're going to release a Snyder cut, which is like everyone's wanted this movie without Joss Whedon since it dropped in the cinemas. (laughs) Which is... People have finally realised, I think. So when women and people of colour do a bad job, they're never heard from again, if they even get the same opportunities as white men. Mm-hmm. We see that in the MCU specifically that Anna Bowden was only allowed to direct Captain Marvel in collaboration with um, Ryan Fleck. Like, even though they are a filmmaking duo, Kevin Feige could have chosen a singular female director who would have done a fantastic job. And I have a list of them. Oh, yes. Do tell me, please. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, Mara Brock-Akil, who produced Black Lightning, but she's a director in her own right. Uh, Nia DaCosta is uh, directed Candyman, which was written by Jordan Peele and is coming out this year. Yes. Tina Gordon did Little. Uh, Victoria Mahoney did The Rise of Skywalker, which I haven't seen, mm-hmm. but, like, mm-hmm. no. Mm-hmm. No? Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, not that one. <laughs> okay. Well, Mary Harron, who did American Psycho. Lexi Alexander, who did Punisher Warzone, <sighs> which is a Marvel movie. Like, those t- last two movies are, like... Like, men adore them. Like, mm. and they're made by a woman. Like, big brain here. Like, <laughs> why do we never get them back? The same as uh, The Matrix with the Wachowski sisters. Yes, exactly. That would be fantastic. Then we can get trans and female directors. I have my problems with the Wachowskis. Well, I know. I know. I, have, I listened to your Sensate episode on sexuality with Alex. Yes. 
but also Catherine Bigelow, who did Point Break in the Heart Locker. Like, she's not my favourite director, but she's a competent director. Like, and action, yeah. Yeah, and action. Karen Kusama, who I fucking love. She did Jennifer's Body, Girl Fight, and she even did Destroyer with Sebastian Stan. I haven't <laughs> seen that movie for reasons. I have reasons why I haven't seen that movie, okay. but I will eventually see it. Um, Catherine Hardwick, who did Lords of Dogtown and Twilight, so mm. she is a capable director. Like, yeah. I know everyone hates Twilight, but it was directed well. But the directing was good. It was well directed. It, the directing wasn't the problem. No. The source material and the actors. <laughs> and the cast. Uh, the, sorry. Yeah. yeah, the cast and the script. Yeah. Uh, Garinda Charter, who did Bend It Like Beckham. Oh, my God. Nostalgia right here. And Jennifer Kent, who did The Babadook and is an Australian director. Fuck yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, Lexi Alexander was the first of two women to direct a Marvel movie with Punisher Warzone in 2008. And the second woman was Anna Bowden in 2019, over a decade later. Uh, just oh, for man. comparison, I counted 16 DC films directed by women since 2007, but 14 of these are animated films. So Patty Jenkins was the first woman to direct a live-action DC film with Wonder Woman in 2017, and Kathy Yan was the second with Birds of Prey this year. So it's uh, pretty bleak all around. And on that note, I I, I wanted to note as well, Patty Jenkins was meant to be an MCU director. She was meant to be on Thor 2. She had it and everything, and she's raised with Natalie Portman, and it was all lined up. But then, like, two Game of Thrones directors, like, Ugh. showed up and they're like, ooh, that's the Ugh. it thing right now. We can make it gritty, dark fantasy. So fuck you, Patty Jenkins, and come on in. <laughs> and that's why, actually, Natalie Portman, which I'm sure we can discuss more, that's why she didn't return yeah. for so long. And she didn't return for any other cameos in any other films. She didn't return to Thor 3. And um, she's only just, I think, upon, like, meeting Taika Waititi and talking to the team again, said that she wants to be back for Love and Thunder. Damn. But that was because she's, yeah, it was a big, big problem. (laughs) Good on her. Good on her for standing up. Okay, let's get into the Avengers. Avengers. Okay, so the content warnings for this episode are violence against women, which includes threats of intimate partner violence. So, yes. Yes. Uh, Let's do our summary. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. Um, (laughs) We open on a shield base. It is dark. No, no, we open Uh, with Loki. Getting the staff. That's a no. Yes, we don't. We do. That's a po- no way. Yeah, we do. No way. No, we start with Loki because when they're at the base, he appears. Yeah. Okay. I'm bad. Oh god. Okay. For context, guys. First time I ever watched this, which is what gets stuck in my head, is it was my birthday, and I was um I was at a restaurant, and I had two carloads worth of friends, so we had to decide who was going to get to the cinema first, and so I was noble and honourable and let the first half go. And so I missed the first 10 minutes of this film the first time I watched it. And I think the first time I watched it is still burned into my head. So, sorry. Well, it's not my bad, a very Lisa. good film no matter what, which time you watch it. So. No. Okay, uh, so we start with Loki getting the staff, talking to one of these alien dudes who I don't know the name of and who really cares. Chitauri? Chitauri, yeah. Um, and <laughs> I really cares. Dana chimes in. Me? Is it not? <laughs> So he gets the staff, and then, as Dana says, we cut to the shield the, base. The shield base. Um, and they're experimenting with the Tesseract, which has been pulled out of the ocean long ago by Howard Stark, and they've been in the storage facility, and they're trying to open a gateway, essentially. Oh, no, they're not trying to open the gateway. They're trying to harness the power, and in doing so, um, the Tesseract's misbehaving, as they put it. But that's because of Loki. 
Yes, so the Tesseract opens a portal and Loki himself steps through and proceeds to murder a bunch of people and steal the Tesseract. What does he do? And brainwashes brainwashes Hawkeye. And uh, Selvig. And Selvig, yes, yes, yes. Selvig was implied strongly to already be brainwashed before this. Yeah, that's true. In the Thor post credit. Oh, okay. Yeah. One of my questions was why was Selvig possessed and he went like loopy banana pancakes, but when Hawkeye was possessed, nothing happened? No, I think it's implied that he's been possessed for longer. So if we remember, throw back to the Thor one end credit scene, it has Selvig walking through the base of Fury, Fury showing him around, making him an employee of S.H.I.E.L.D., and then we have, like, Loki in a reflection being like, well, let's take a look. Yes, I like, remember that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Loki blows up the um, the shield base, and yep. then what happens is Fury decides to get the Avengers together. Um, I've forgotten everything that happens in this film. Okay, no, so he decides to get the <laughs> Avengers together. We cut to, I believe, first is... Um, oh, it's Hulk. Is, no, not Hulk first, because they've got to get Natasha oh, before right. they can get Hulk. I believe we cut to yes. Natasha first, oh. especially because Fury's like, oh, my God, they've got Barton. So um, he calls Natasha, who's in the middle of an interrogation with some sleazy Russian dude, because they all are, um, <laughs> according to every movie ever. And um, she beats the shit out of everyone there using her chair and her hair. <laughs> and her pussy in face, red room, thighs of death move. Please, <laughs> that's how I want to go. No, <laughs> um, no. Uh, so she beats the shit out of everyone, and she's like, "I'm still in the middle of my mission." And it goes, "No, I need you." He's got Barton, and so then it cuts to um, Hulk, and Bruce has been hiding out in, I believe, Calcutta. Um, in, yes, Calcutta, and he's been acting as a doctor. And he's been trying to find, I guess, his peace and deal with. Um, on the run as the Hulk all the time and not getting tracked by the military and Ross. And Natasha pays a child to trick him to come to a uh, location. And um, there's a whole bunch of, like, S.H.I.E.L.D. agents outside with all of their drinks and bullets, I assume. And she convinces Hulk to join the cause. And then we cut to Captain America um, at Mm -hmm. the gym, (laughs) all sweaty and... Beating up, yeah, beating the shit out of a punching bag. <laughs> yes, and um, we get a bit of a montage of what happened to him, so we can see um, he has PTSD, and that's why he's up late at night, um, not being able to sleep. So we get Fury come in and try and recruit him, and he's all like, "Nah, I've already been through a war and everything, and I'm just not." But then he gets convinced and joins the team, and then we've got Tony as well, who's just chilling with Pepper in Stark Tower. I think they've just turned on the uh, the lights to their new building, essentially, and are celebrating. Um, there's some banter between them about uh, the Stark Tower project only being, like, 12% of Pepper's child and, like, 88% Tony's because that's him with anything on screen time whenever a scene yeah, is in. Yeah, 88% screen time. <laughs> yeah. And um, what happens is they are interrupted by Coulson, who walks up, and Tony's like, no, no, I don't want to hear anything. I don't like being handed things. You guys rejected me. I don't want part of your boy band. And Pepper's like, oh, I'll have a look at it. Oh, I'll have a look. No, oh, I'll do it. <laughs> and then um, Tony gets convinced and he joins the Avengers. 
Um, yeah, he takes the bait as well. They go to a shield base kind of thing, which is a helicarrier in the middle of the ocean. Yep. And, um, yep. and then it, it turns into a ship of some kind that flies yes. through the air. It flies. A, it's a helicarrier. Heli yeah. Yeah. And then, um, so they're all kind of on the, on the base, on the helicarrier, just like chatting about, um, Loki and they just need to Stop find fighting. him and, Hulk is recruited, uh, Bruce Banner is recruited because he can track the gamma radiation from that the Tesseract yes. gives off. So yes. at first glance, it's like, oh, you're only here in a science way. But then as we will find out later on, no, he's here to do damage as the Hulk. Um, as Hulk. So they track Loki down and they bring, they try and bring him back to base, except that Thor flies down and collects him. And then there's a big battle between... Iron Man, Thor, and Cap, yes, and then they all come back to the helicarrier where Loki is put in a some sort of prison cage. In a, hell, a cell. In a cell. Yeah. I'm still not sure because Joss Whedon writing, he's like, he's trying to be extra clever with 800 layers, but it just gets confusing. I think it's strongly implied that Loki wanted to be on the ship yes. to, like, get in all their heads yes. and cause trouble and his staff which they're all studying around the table makes them all fight and get distracted and angry at yes. each other. But let's be honest, they're all going to fight anyway because they're full of tension and Joss Whedon only knows how to make things interesting when people don't like each other. Um, <laughs> he's like but, he's like every friggin' like first-year writing student who produces a melodrama strip, script by having the characters just yell at each other. Like, yeah. It's <laughs> There's no nuance whatsoever. It's just them bickering and fighting and no. yapping at each it's other. It's not even a clash of ideals. Or he tries to make it a clash of ideals, especially with Tony and Steve. But it never is. It always just goes back to personal insults mm. and, like, top-level stuff. But anyway, um, so they're all fighting. And um, Hawkeye, who is under Loki's control, is able to track him, I believe, or track the scepter. Yep and comes to the helicarrier and, like, fucks everything up and deletes all their data and, like, absolutely wrecks shop. And um, along the way, lets Loki out. Loki goes and he kills Coulson. Um, and he yeets Thor from this guy because Thor's tried to tackle him back in the cell and gone straight through him, and he locks Thor in the cell and drops it. Yeah, and that scene where Thor is like tumbling through the air in the cage uh, in the prison cell is like the funniest thing in the movie. <laughs> I love him and it makes me sad that they just keep, stop doing it to him. Just let him have a good day. No, it's not possible when Loki's alive. The Avengers are all scattered to the wind. Uh, Hulk rampaged in this time as well and got like, um, he just like yeeted himself, I think, into a plane and then he fell to earth as mm. well. Um, so they're all literally scattered to the wind um, emotionally, mentally and physically and feel defeated. But then Coulson's death spurs Cap and Tony on to action and they all meet up in New York to try and they all, Tony figures out that Loki wants flowers parade, a big ugly statue in the sky with, built to the top and he goes oh son of a bitch he's building his shit on top of my tower mm -hmm. <laughs> ego recognize ego um, so they have this big boss battle in new york where the oh, i can't even know what they're called i looked this name up chitari. chitari but i looked the name up of those big whale things and i oh um called. 
No oh God, idea. what are they called? No, they're just the the big Chitari boys. Leviathan. Well, Leviathan. Yes. Yeah, that That's... makes sense. So, yes, Loki opens up a portal, and all of the Chitari in the army come pouring through, and they're going to take over New York and then the world, I guess. Um, and there's just massive battles all over the place, trying to contain civilian damage, trying to stop everything falling apart. The government, in all of their intelligent decision-making, try to nuke New York. And um, Iron Man grabs the nuke and goes through the portal while Na- Natasha yep. is trying to close it. Um, he ends up falling back to Earth just as the portal closes. Hulk grabs him to stop him from dying and brings yep. him, like, drops him back on the ground and then roars to wake him up. And then everyone, like, finishes that's the end of it and there's this montage yep. scene of like um people talking about how you know captain america saved them and the avengers are so cool and that kind of stuff and um the post-credit scene for this one i believe was thanos going well i guess i'll do it myself yes it's thanos and the next one is when they're eating eating shawarma oh, yes oh my computer yeah, is just making so much noise <laughs> if anyone can hear oh, that that's hear my thing. computer <laughs> <laughs> oh no it, rest in peace oh, um okay so that's our recap god that was i think we've had some good recaps that have been really enthusiastic and this one has just been like oh my god let's get through this bad 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 <sighs> i know i just i loved this movie at the time but every time i reflect it just ugh. anyway all right what do we want to cover today maria maria hill Oh, yes, we're talking about our feminism now. Yes. Let's go. So Maria Hill is one of the first characters we've seen in the film. I think she might be, like, not including that first. She's in the base. Loki. She might be the second character we see or the first. Uh, she um, drives the truck to get Fury out. They, they, so, come in, they come from a helicopter, though, and she steps out of the helicopter. Yeah. She might actually be, like, the first human, um, the first human character we see. So we do get to hear her name. Um, when the, when the base is exploding, Fury calls her over the walkie, or just before it happens, um, he calls her over the walkie-talkie and says Hill, so we know her name is Mm -hmm. Hill, but we know from other contexts that her name is Maria Hill. Um, and she, again, like we talked about this in our, uh, I think Iron Man 2 episode, is that she fills the stern and responsible stereotype that, um, that Pepper fills. She kind of, like, has no sense of humour. She's almost a robot, yeah. like... Hard worker. And which they improve on, thank God, in um, Cap 2. Yeah, that was good. She's great. Uh, so I think she just she just has very, like, baselines, gender responsible. I, was, I think it's a big nod as well, to be fair, to her comic book counterpart. Okay. Because, yeah, Maria Hill in the comics, like, I, like, was absolutely excited when her character was first introduced because I'm like, oh, cool, maybe when they do Civil War in a few years... She's going to be that acting director of S.H.I.E.L.D. who's just, like, absolutely, like, she's the one who mans the hunt for all of the superheroes because Fury's missing. And she and Tony are pretty much the pro-registration. So I thought they were building up to that. They were going to show that she's so sick of superheroes causing all this damage and killing people in their duties, but they never did anything with it. Because they destroyed S.H.I.E.L.D. in Cap Exactly. (laughs) They literally destroyed (laughs) S.H.I.E.L.D. altogether. They just took took everything that was the original Civil War storyline in the comics that made it so special. Because they weren't even planning on having Civil War. Like, they were going to go do Serpent Society. And then Feige came in, swinging his dick around. 
Um, so we don't really learn anything about Maria. Um, we yeah. don't even learn her first name in the film. Um, but she shows yeah. allegiance to Fury and she listens to him. Um, she answers yeah. to him all throughout the film. And, um, yeah, she tries to take out Hawkeye and Loki at the beginning. And then she kind of, mm-hmm. like, sticks with Fury and, you know, uses her handguns to take people out, I guess. I don't really know what she does after that. She's not yeah. really in it that much. No, there's a scene with the grenade in the control room where she just, like... yes gets like smashed but then gets up and she's got the big blood streak down her face as she keeps shooting pointlessly where Hawkeye used to be yeah. <laughs> um, but um but I yeah I think she was underutilized because she has a good comic legacy I think Joss Whedon was just really lazy and relying on that the kid people who are fans of the comics to just insert all the gaps like all the people who, who weren't fans of the comics to just completely not care about her yeah i mean that's the problem with these movies is that there's so much intertextuality between the comics and the films and they don't explain a lot of it like we don't get the backstory between maria and uh fury and like why they work together so well and why she's so trusted by fury and sadly i think there's more of this in agents of shield or more of these ideas but they distanced themselves like the first season was very true to the movies and like working in collaboration with marvel studios and then marvel studios turned its back on its own property which is pretty sad and we're just like nothing that happens in that show is canon now (laughs) why even bother having it i know it's just that's the one thing like i think a lot of dc has going for it is they've in attempting to keep their things quite separate but there's still cohesion between them they never actively have pieces of their properties that try and shut down other pieces Mm. Whereas Marvel's just like, because they sold their TV rights to one group and sold their movie rights to another group and did this and that, and Disney now owns it. It's just a mess. Mm. Yes, that is. <laughs> and they always rewrite their own canon. Let's talk about Natasha. So when we first see her, she's getting up, beaten up by scary Russians. Uh, one yeah. literally hits her across the face and another mm. one forces her mouth open because the first one is going to take her teeth out with a plier. <laughs> Um, as, with pliers, I should say, um, as I've learned, um, you can't actually take a whole tooth out with pliers because it'll shatter. Yeah, you'll crush the tooth. Mm. Yeah. Which I think is the point. It's more intimidating. So nasty. Yeah, it's gross. (laughs) Um, she is dressed to the nines. She's in a very tight dress that shows off all of her titties. Big titties. (laughs) They're bouncing. Yeah, they're just bouncing everywhere. bouncing. When she's running but, across the concrete floor. Yeah. <laughs> How Joss Whedon likes to frame women in his things. <laughs> um, she does the red room thighs of death thing in her in her dress. <laughs> uh, her moves are so... I looked at a comparison once and it was just like, when we have Natasha doing all her moves and Spider-Man doing all his moves. And it's like, can we get some equality, please? Because they fight the exact same way. Like, they're all flippy and, like, using momentum and please either have um, Peter Parker also do the slutty Red Room of Thighs of Death move (laughs) or stop Natasha from doing it, please. Uh, Well, it's happened, like, it happens in Agent Carter. um, Yeah. Dottie, I think her name is. Um, Yeah, they just, I think, yeah, the Red Room style of school of fighting is just... It's just thighs in the face. Mm. Which, like, honestly, 
<laughs> One thing I wanted to note is that um, ScarJo or Natasha uses the word moron, which is an ableist slur. Yeah. It's it's not a very nice word, and we shouldn't use it anymore. Um, but Mm-mm. as soon as Coulson mentions that Hawkeye is being compromised, like her whole demeanor changes, and she yeah. is then like, "Okay, well, I'll take these guys out." Like she was interrogating them pretty much, like. Yeah, she was just playing with them. Yeah. And but as soon as he says that Hawkeye's being compromised, she's like, "Oh shit! Okay, well, I've got to get my act into gear." And then the next scene, yeah. she's confronting Bruce and Calcutta. I do. I would also like that shot as she's walking away. Sorry, and she's got like the heels in her hands because fuck putting them back on. Like that's a fucking move. Well, there are some <laughs> shots in this film that I really enjoy. Like the way it's yeah. shot is really enjoyable, but the whole like directing the script, like it's just overall terrible. Yeah. But there were some parts where I'm like, that's shot really well. I like it. Yes. Yeah, so she does go to confront Bruce in Kolkata to try and recruit him, and she's terrified of him. Yep. She's really terrified she of him. She's scared. They, they thread that. They thread that through the whole film, and then Whedon still decided that. Bruce and her were going to be a thing. It's because this thing that men have this idea that women being terrified means they're horny. Like, it's there's so many scenes that I've watched in film and TV where there's been a man who's been threatening a woman and then suddenly the next minute they're having sex and it's it's like, no, that's <sighs> that's not good. And I think as well, even coupled with that, it's also the whole idea that Bruce is this soft, nerdy, sweet guy. Like, that's the the Whedon-esque insert, I guess, so to speak. Just this sweet nerd guy who's had such bad luck in his life. And what if the hot, super femme fatale spy fell in love with the nerd guy? Like, it's just so gross. (laughs) Oh, my God. I remember when um, Joss Whedon was like, um, you know, I see a lot of myself in Ultron. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll talk about that when we get to Ultron. <laughs> I need to find that quote. Okay, so um, just with her falling in love with Bruce, like I, I really ship like Hawkeye and Nat in this film. Like, yeah. I the, as soon as I saw it, I was like, yes, like they were one of the first, yeah. um, like het pairings that I really enjoyed. Um, mm. And so I always had Canon Nace, uh, Nat as ace, but hetero romantic, so like still mm-hmm. being with Hawkeye. Um, and so yeah. I was like really upset when the whole Bruce and Tasha <laughs> and Hawkeye and Linda Cardellini <laughs> thing happened in Age yeah. I was I was so upset about that. No, I, I feel you there. Um, I, I think they've got such history and that in the comics and the shows and the other things as well that it just instead of doing what everyone actually liked they just wanted to make something surprising and unpredictable um there's a big thing with Natasha though that's interesting to discuss and this is like I was in peak Avengers fandom around this time I saw everybody being like obsessing over this movie and all of the shipping and everything and a lot of the fandom used to really do Tasha a lot of dirty um they used to like yes make her ace in their fix or in their things just so they could partner up all the guys really neatly to their heart's desire and didn't even have to think about a woman being in the piece. Oh, Clint Coulson. Oh, my God. Yeah, Clint and Coulson. <laughs> because there's only five guys on the team. Yeah, I was just like, who are they? Yeah, playing? there were only five guys on the team. So you had, you had like, you had, I think, um, you had um, Steve and Tony and you had Thor and Bruce and then you had 
Colin Coulson because they so there was so much misogyny within even the fandom, which was full of like young girls, like, and they were just so determined to like completely write Natasha out of any sexuality, write her out of any desire, and like if this had been written well and cleverly, like, and someone with an ace perspective had tackled this, it could have been amazing. Mm. Um, and I want to talk about this because I remember, especially in the later movies, and especially. I know we're going to get there and talk about it, but with her dying and basically that being a declaration of love for Clint, um, I had a friend who came out of it and was like, you know what was actually really important to her? She's ace. She was like, their relationship to me, I was actually, she was really delighted that it wasn't a romantic or a sexual mm-hmm. one because she was like, it reminded me of my queer platonic partner. Now, for anyone who's not in with an ace lingo, your queer platonic partner is essentially like, but basically, the concept that she describes it is, is like a soulmate, but not one romantically or sexually. It is just that person who is so important to you and, like, more strong than a best friend, more than that, more intimate. You'd share your inner workings in your life and you'd want to live with them and, like, be a part of their life forever. But, yeah, and she was like, actually, Natasha is really cool ace rep for me as far as the fact that, like, her declaration and sacrifice of love was considered just as valid as romantic or sexual love yeah and also like um it was considered as strong a bond as say like thanos and gamora because yeah like a yeah oh Mm. huge um but yeah i see what you're going there it's just there's so much and i'm just getting like flashbacks to 2012 and the peak of watching everybody (laughs) be like natasha doesn't exist and I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that. There's still so much cognitive dissonance. So much misogyny is tied up in the fandom and its desire to just ship all the men. Thank God that we that Bucky came back in The Winter Soldier and Sam was introduced so we could have the Cap Quartet. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm just... Oh. I was the only person in my friends who did not like Steve and Tony together. I've been there. I lived my war. I cannot stand that thing. I know, and it came out of this just because two people hated each other. I... Oh, Joss Whedon is to blame for all of my problems. Yeah, he is. So valid. Um, and I like your point underneath that her motivations in this film are to keep Hawkeye safe. Yeah. What does Loki say to her um, he again? He says, your world is in the balance and you bargain for one man. And she goes, regimes fall every day. I'm Russian. I tend not to weep over that. Yeah, I know. So that's a huge statement. Like, mm. fuck regimes, fuck everybody. I'm going to keep Clint safe. I think that's really cool. Like, it goes back to the queer platonic partner thing that you were talking about. Like, they do care for each other so much. So like, deeply. So deeply. Yeah. And that is put on par with um, the romantic relationships in the movies. Like, yeah. the way that Tony and Pepper would probably do anything for each other. Like, Pepper, um, like, almost quits the company because she doesn't want Tony to kill himself. And exactly, Tony, like, refers to Pepper as, like, the only person that he has. And then you have Clint and Nat who are doing, like, everything that they can for each other. Mm, no, exactly. I think that's really important. So whatever they have going on there, it's pretty deep. It's pretty important. Whether you see that as an ace Natasha with Hawkeye's a clear platonic partner, whether you see it as like a polyamorous situation where Hawkeye has his family, but then Natasha's also an intrinsic part of that. Like, there's a lot to be said there. 
<laughs> I hate this part where Loki calls her a mewling quim because that means, oh that literally means a whimpering vagina. So he, oh. he's basically calling her a cunt. I know, and I call Loki a cunt right back, but he lacks warmth and depth. <laughs> <laughs> he is a genocidal maniac. Uh, yeah, lacking warmth and depth, all right. Fuck you, Loki. A warm light for all mankind. <laughs> no, he's just such an a dick in this movie. And I hate that, it, as well as, so there's, yeah, several things that came out of this that always knocked me, which was people ignoring Natasha, just to talk about the dudes. It was Steve and Tony shipped together, and it was everybody fucking adoring Loki after this. The three things. Okay. <laughs> the three so, pillars of Dana's curse for the next five years came out of this movie. Okay, so I said when we were doing our um, Thor episode, I said that um, that I ended up liking Loki. I liked Loki in the first Thor movie enough, because I got it. I'm like, weird leap, still murder, but I get it. You've been indoctrinated your entire life and your world is just, and the world is, is like turned on its head right now. But like, yeah, in this movie, I just hate him. Yeah. It's he's the worst. The um, worst. He's written really badly because Joss Whedon doesn't know how to write any character except for Tony. But yes. um, with Nat though, we do learn about her past and her allegiance to Hawkeye. So like we do learn more about her in this movie and it's coming from her as well. She's willingly giving up this information. So yeah. um, we learn more about her in this film than we do, what, what else was she in? Um, Iron Man 2, we didn't learn anything about her in that film except that she's a S.H.I.E.L.D. Asian. Um, yeah. So we do learn more about her. Which is good. I think that's... They are building upon her character slowly by slowly, even though she isn't, like... She's part of the main ensemble, but does get less screen time than a lot of them. Mm. Um, But she does have a discernible arc. Like, she goes from um, being this spy who's, you know, um, in the shadows, and she goes to, like Dana was saying in a different episode, I can't remember which one, um, she goes... To, from being a spy to being, like, one of the most recognisable people in the world. Yeah, and, like, how do you even keep being a spy when your face is literally all over the world? Like, you have to be a frontline hero at that point. <laughs> Which is interesting because in The Winter Soldier, she's like, you know, I have to, like, make up some new covers. I have to go and go underground again. And it's like, how? Yeah, she she has a really amazing skill set in this movie, mm. but it's just like so underutilized. Mm. So underutilized. They just have her shooting lots of things at the end. Oh, I guess she had some moment as well when she just leaps onto the back of the the flying scooter thing, That's awesome. and it's like her arm would be completely ripped off. Yeah, <laughs> right. But whatever. Um, cool tag team like moves with yeah, Cap. That was awesome. That's important to me. Um, but she also closes the portal. With the staff. She does. So she plays a pretty important role. Like, Hawkeye's role in this film is basically nothing. Yeah, he's just there to be lucky. Because Loki can't do this without an ally who knows the inside and outside of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. So, But, like, all he does in the boss battle is just, like, shoot a couple Chitauri. Uh, who else have we got in this film? No, we're still talking about Natasha. I still have so much to discuss with Natasha. Are we? Yeah. Is there still anything to yes, say? Yes, I have more things to okay, say. Okay, what? 
So when Loki Loki threatens to make Hawkeye kill her, which is really problematic because Ugh. then like the Hulk almost does kill her, and then in the next mm. film she is made to fall in love with him. Like it's yeah. very yikes. Yeah. Um, I know. But she's when she's like after she um, after she is finished battling the Hulk, I guess, or she runs away from him. She's like terrified and cowering in a corner, but when Fury calls for help, she answers immediately and then kicks Hawkeye's ass. And their fight scene yeah. is the best fight scene in the entire film. I love their scene. The biting, <laughs> the like just absolutely being dicks to each other is wonderful. The hair pulling. <laughs> yeah, and the, the smack that finally wakes him up from his chest <laughs> when you hit when you hit your QPP so hard <laughs> that they snap back to themselves. That's a queer experience. No, I'm not. No, you do not hit people. Don't hit people. <laughs> Waking people up from brainwashing is Just gentle, a queer like, put them in a nice bath. Um, so, yeah, she does have a definable arc. Um, she goes from a emotionally compromised, she gets emotionally compromised and chooses to put a spy pass behind her to save the world. Mm hmm. Which is, I think, yeah. I think she, as far. Okay, and he's. It's very Whedon esque. Like, he can write one female character okay it's never perfect and it's always got many problematic elements with who she ends up partnered with etc but it's like Buffy for its time in the 90s was pretty solid but it's just that Whedon's never kind of gone beyond that very surface level feminism and even in shows like Firefly etc it's like yes there's all these strong competent kick-ass women but they are victimized by the men in their lives or they are um, you know, insulted to their face all the time and called cunts or called, like, sluts, like in Firefly, Inara is a great example, uh, bitches, etc. because he feels like that's the biggest problem that women have to face is what they're called. <laughs> um, yeah, and he's just, he just never grows up, does he? He never gets past that and he never actually bothers to learn from all these fantastic women he's worked with in the past. Like, he never examines his own biases. Yeah. What do you think it would have been like? What do you think it would have been like if we got Emily Blunt playing Oh, I would have uh, loved Widow. to see Emily Blunt. She would have been so jacked. I know. It would have been really good. Um, I, I haven't <sighs> seen her in a lot of stuff, but I think she, I saw her in Edge of Tomorrow and she had, like, massive guns in that movie. It was fantastic. Yeah. Um, and she's also in... Um, that movie, The Silence or something? Um, uh, A Quiet, a quiet place. place. I haven't seen that yes. because it's a scary movie and I don't do scary movies. No. I'm going to watch it with my housemate at some point very, very soon because he's deaf. So cool. he's very excited to watch cool. it because I think it's got a main character who is. And yes. Beautiful. Okay, let's yes. talk about Peppa. Peppa, she's just in this to have a cameo and be Tony's girlfriend. Yep. She's only in it for five minutes. At the start, um, a little bit of comic relief with Coulson and Tony. Like, she's the kind of, like, mediator between their little huffiness at each other. But um, that line, that and 12% line, I'll have that... <laughs> 12% of it. <laughs> because the whole thing is, like, a discussion. It's like a veiled discussion about children as well in the future, which I think is very oh. telling of Tony. Okay. Um, it's like because it's their baby like they refer to the tower as their baby and etc and so 12% of my own baby like mm. etc and that's a, I think a big comment on the Starks and their 
rigid, weird family masculinity and their old legacy idea. Anyway, <laughs> we could read into that, but I don't care enough about Tony to want to read into that much more. No. Do you want to mention his stripper heels? <laughs> I do want to. So you wrote a beautiful note here. Do you want to tell me what you found was really cute about I this I thought scene? it was really cute that Gwyneth Paltrow was not wearing shoes. I thought it was cute that she was walking yeah. around in bare feet. I don't know why. I just I- thought that was nice. It's very domestic, isn't it? It like gives that real impression that they're starting to settle in and be like a real adult couple instead of just um, instead of just Pepper taking care of Tony's shit all the time. But I also think this is actually because Gwyneth Paltrow is as tall as a giraffe and Robert Downey Jr. is short. He's my height. He's like five foot seven. And so every scene he's in in this movie, he always has to wear these little stripper heels. <laughs> they're so tall. They're chunky, don't get me wrong. So they're not quite like the stiletto, whatever. But they're so tall. <laughs> he's wearing like taller boots than I wear when I go on a night on the town. It's fantastic. But because, yeah, they're trying to make Tony look tough and big compared to like Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> so I'm going to put him in these heels. <laughs> I love it. It's my favorite thing in the world. So we just, every time you look at an Iron Man movie and all the guys want to complain or whatever, just be like, yep, Robert Downey Jr. is wearing heels. (laughs) So don't complain about your tall queens. (laughs) It reminds me of um, in the end of, I think it's Thor 2. Yeah, it would have been Thor 2, where um, Mm -hmm. Jane and Thor uh, reunite again. um, And she has to run up a a ramp to kiss him. Because she's yeah. so tiny. She's like five foot tall. She's, yep, yeah, she's so little. And yep, yeah, they need they, to shoot They call that. it a kiss ramp. The kiss ramp. <laughs> no, it, it's so funny. It's very good. Oh, man. Um, so Gwyneth Paltrow was one of the, like, we fucking hate Gwyneth Paltrow. Goop, fuck, fuck off. Like, <sighs> but she Jeez. did do this thing with um, a couple other influencers and celebrities where um, she did the Share the Mic Now campaign, where white celebrities gave mm. their platforms to black women. Um, she gave her Instagram to Latham Thomas, who is an entrepreneur and founder of the maternity service Mama Glow. But as Dana pointed out... Um, maybe maybe this is just the biggest swindle ever. Yeah. Maybe she only made Goop, because the only people who can afford Goop are, like, the richest white people in the world. And, like... So maybe she just made Goop to con people out of their money for shitty products and then give it to these organizations. Maybe she's secretly a good guy and she's happy copping the flack so long as no one ever cottons no, on to the fact evil. that... she is an evil no. human being. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm kidding. I'm just trying to look for a light here. Like, it's all well and good to do some good things here and there and I'm, I'm glad she did participate in those discussions and give platforms, but, like... Why, why goop? Why like these weird vagina eggs? Why like, <laughs> why is she like this? Vagina candles. She's just like a hippie mum, but on steroids. <laughs> and just, I don't know. Do you want to talk about Jane? I'd love to talk about Jane. Um, Cause uh, what, what did you notice about Jane in this film? That she's only mentioned, um, that they talk about how she's taken to a safe location after Selvig is possessed. Yes. So Thor asks if she's okay, blah, blah, blah. And um, the excuse for her not being in set for this was um, Natalie Portman was pregnant. And I'm like, what a shitty excuse. Like, we have shots in movies that are specifically designed to be close-ups. Or, like, you could have an audio scene where she calls or Thor calls her on the phone or something. 
Scarlett Johansson was pregnant throughout the entire filming of Age of Ultron. Yes, exactly. And through the work of camera magic and stunt doubles and everything, like, it's a really shitty thing to, like, exclude someone from a franchise they're a part of because they're having a child. Like, it's not hard to frame a shot. And, and another, th- okay, something that Joss Whedon directly worked on, Gal- as well as Age of Ultron, Gal Gadot in um, the, the reshoots for Justice League was forced to do so many reshoots in her metal swimsuit while she was pregnant. Like, what? <laughs> Why couldn't something have worked here to just, I don't know, have Jane and Thor on the phone talking or just a quick, you know, <sighs> cameo? Because, um, I don't know. Like, in in Thor 2, we find out that when Darcy says that, you know, he disappeared for two years and didn't come back, and they could have had a scene between them in this, and, like, Thor expressing, you know, he misses Jane and he wants to be there, he just can't right now. Like, that would have yeah. been something to, like, as opposed to Jane just completely yeah. mooning over him for two years with nothing. Yeah, even if they didn't want to keep the... If they wanted to keep that he didn't even talk to her, like, when he popped down in New York or whatever the thing is, they could have just had a shot of her, like, getting off a plane and, you know, the last time S.H.I.E.L.D. goons rocked up to talk to her, all her shit got taken. And, like, like she could, we could have had a shot of a S.H.I.E.L.D. guy trying to, like, escort her, like, and not giving her enough information. She, like, punches him in the face. Just something. Like, <laughs> I would have loved that. It's like, like, she's trying to run away and they're like... Miss Foster, we're trying to get you on a plane <laughs> to a safe location. <laughs> Don't trust him. And especially, and it's especially telling because, like, Loki's back. He's the big bad guy. Mm. Did I, And we didn't mention this in our Thor 1, I think, and I completely forgot, and we should have brought it up. In the culminating fight scene between Thor and Loki, Loki threatens to go down and pay Jane a little visit. Oh. In a real creepy Ugh. way. Like... Yeah, it's implied that he's threatening to go and be like, oh, that woman changed you, did she? Well, maybe I should go and visit. Like, ugh. Gross. So Jane should have, there should have been a little bit of something here. Mm. Like, uh, anyway. But Joss Whedon doesn't care about any characters except for Tony. No. Including Thor and extending to Thor's love interests, etc. So with the queerness aspect, I pretty much, like, put down every character because I see almost every male character as queer. Ah, yes. 2012 Avengers. Here I come again. <laughs> okay. Except for Clint. I didn't bother putting down Clint because I just don't care about nah, him. No, that's fair. Um, I don't know. Again, we I think we covered Loki to death in that he could be an interesting representation of, I don't know, but I don't like that. I'll, I don't want to connect Loki to queerness at the moment, particularly like, yes, myth- mythologically and everything, it makes sense, but the way he keeps being written in these films... I'm not comfortable. He's genocidal. He's atrocious. Pretty much the opposite of or what he's like trying to embody all the things that have happened to queer people. So yeah, I don't, I don't see it with him in this. Maybe the melodrama and that's it. Yeah, I think they queer code him quite a bit, but um, yeah. yeah. But then again, he's a villain. So of course they're queer coding. He's very camp in the same way that like Disney villains are very camp. Like, Loki is too. So I put down Nick Fury and I have reasons for this because <laughs> and we'll go into them more in The Winter Soldier. But like I see Nick Fury as a queer character. Like not necessarily yeah. like they were trying to make him a queer character or they were queer coding him in any way, but like I see mm. Nick as a queer character. Just, just that whole ass leather ensemble? He's just he's a leather daddy. <laughs> 
Well, I don't agree with leather, but like he looks good. <laughs> um, yeah, so he's one of the first characters we see and has the most authority in the film. But mm-hmm. he, like, I love him. I love him so much. And Sam yeah, Jackson's gravitas is just incredible. Yeah, uh, Sam Jackson's fantastic. I think he was the best choice ever for Fury. Yeah, absolutely. There's no one else I would ever pick for this role. Um, he has some really um, great lines in it. Like, I love the part where he's like, is the sun rising? Then put it on the left. <laughs> but at the same time, like, he, no one trusts him, and he basically tricks them all into, like, coming on board. Like, he tricks um, Hulk into, like, he tricks Bruce into yeah. being a part of the Avengers. Once he's there, he's, he's the boy band stuck. manager. Yeah. He's the boy band manager. He just gets them all in the way that he needs them to be at the right time. But he tricks. He also tricks them into beginning the third act, where they, where he's like, he has the um, Coulson's cards, and he's like, you know, blah blah blah. They needed a yeah. push or whatever, blah. like, yeah. So, but he also defies yeah. the order from the Security Council to bomb Manhattan, even though they still do it anyway. And also, this one part that I fucking loved, he takes out a plane yeah. with a bazooka, like a boss bitch. Do we want to move on to Bruce? Okay. Or- yeah, let's talk about Bruce a little bit, um, especially linking to queerness. Yeah, love Ruffalo's performance. Love him. It's great. He's so soft. He's lovely. I think I used to I used to call him Fluffalo, especially <laughs> after this movie where he's got his hair. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I lost her. I lost her, folks. <laughs> so great. I love it. Yeah. yeah. He's just. He's very sweet. I think he's the best Hulk we've got yet. Yeah. He's and I think. Great. I'm happy. I'm happy we ended up with him. Yeah. Um, um, so he yeah. just wants to do his work, but he's manipulated by Hokey, by Hokey, by Loki into losing control. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and he's doing so well. He's indestructible. He literally falls from the sky, and he survives. Yeah. And well, that's the whole point of Hulk is that he literally. Oh, do we want to talk about the line that he talks about? Oh, um, yeah. Uh, um, might put a trigger warning in the in the um, in the notes. Yeah, yep, in the description. Absolutely, um, because I I found that a powerful. I remember sitting in that theater, and I don't know. I was a very depressed seventeen year old, and I remember sitting there. And when he's like, "I put a bullet in my head, but the Hulk spit it out," I was just like, "Holy shit!" Like imagine having that level of self loathing and trying to like, but still not being able to. Like, oh my god. This poor tortured scientist. Let's. I have a lot of feelings. I really like Bruce, actually. I think he's very underrated in the MCU. And I think um, a lot of his, like we talked about this in the Hulk and the Incredible Hulk episodes, but a lot of his um, backstory and his characterization can be seen as queer subtext. And like that part that Dana was just talking about, how wanting to kill himself is a can be a common experience with queer people. It can be an allegory for feeling like you're never going to be who you need to be or, you know, that there's this big dark part of you that's unchangeable and, you know, how do you live with that? I'm just, it hurts me because I just, it's just a pain, a feeling of community and knowing that there's a lot of people who for so much of their life, there's a part of them that they try to hide or they don't love about themselves to the point where they'd hurt themselves. Yeah, I do like Bruce quite a bit in this film. What else? What do we want to talk about next? He saves Tony twice. <laughs> they have, 
they do have good chemistry in this film. I think you're right on that one. Um, but <laughs> Tony, I don't want to even think about it. He's just a mess. Okay, we won't talk about Tony. But um, Bruce also has a, a definable arc, so he goes from being as far removed as possible to being part of a team. Yeah, which is exactly. A cool thing. It's um, found family as a trope. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so he's used to doing it on his own or like not being able to trust people like after his experience with Ross's with Ross and you know having to leave Betty and everything. Like yeah, found family. Oh, can we quickly talk as well in the scene at the start, this is a very subtle thing that I noticed a few years later. When Natasha finds him and he says the line we can't always get what he want and he's just like gently rocking this little crib that's in the house. And I'm like, oh, Oh, I know. And, like, it reminds me of, like, not quite my experience yet, but I am very maternal and I know I want to adopt and foster kids one day. But, like, a lot of queer people's experiences with not being able to have be granted those rights. No, but a lot of queer people struggle to, like, and even now today in the world, people who will adopt um, reject same-sex couples from adoptions and things like that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of untapped allegories that we could make between Bruce and queerness and that line in particular breaks my heart okay who are we talking about next well being me I naturally wrote (laughs) more um more notes for both Natasha and Steve than I did for like everyone else combined (laughs) (laughs) of course you did (laughs) so um I mean the first thing we notice about him is that he's having PTSD flashbacks um yes and his ass that's also the first thing we notice (laughs) Ass, 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 ass. ass, ass. ass. That's that's the first note I wrote down. It is fantastic. Um, He also, uh, when when Fury mentions that Howard fished the Tesseract out of the ocean when he was looking for you, I was like, you know, is is this the first time that Steve's hearing about this? Because he just, like, immediately shuts down and is like, you know, you should have left it in the ocean. And he just, like, leaves straight away. Yeah, that, that was, was like berserker oh. button right there. Mm. Yeah, like talking about both the tesseract and Howard. Can we talk about his ugly ass clothes? <laughs> Can we? Yeah, like I don't consider Captain America in this. Like I don't consider Steve Rogers in this movie to be canon. Like yeah. I, I just don't. There are some I, parts it, of this movie that I accept, and some parts that I like. Few parts that I like, but I do not accept or like how Steve is portrayed in this film, like at all, in any way. It's just he's dressed like a grandpa. Like, like grandpa fashion isn't just like okay, you were born in the whatever, like the 1910s, so you wear these clothes. No, it's like literally the clothes that are comfortable as you physically age. Does Whedon really think that young men in the 40s dress like that? He obviously didn't watch the movie. No! Like, I have a photo of my grandpa who was born in 1914, like, four years before Steve Rogers, and he's wearing a leather jacket. Well, Steve actually does wear a leather jacket in this. He is wearing a leather jacket. But he's wearing, like, an ugly brown one, and then it's the weird, like, it's, it's literally what my grandpa wore when he was, like, in the 80s. Like... And I know that the point is that Steve would have been in his, like, 90s, 100s, but he's a young man. (laughs) He hasn't been 
Oh, young men still know what clothes look good. Anyway. Yeah, he's I'm only just... like 25, 26 or something. Or like there is, 27 maybe. There's fantastic vintage fashion for young men. Like, like, oh, Where is he anyway. shopping in this film? Like, <laughs> what is and, um, happening? There's also deleted scenes uh, where he's just like riding on the train and he's like looking yeah. at his, like watching things on his laptop and like he's outside a cafe where. Drawing. Um, like, yeah, and it's like. Those kinds of things are nice, but again, yeah. I don't accept them. <laughs> I reject them. I like the drawing in the cafe, and that's yeah. about it. I really like that. Um, yeah, what else? What um, else do we have to talk about? Just the way that, that Joss Whedon portrays Steve. Like, we know from the first Avenger and the Winter Soldier that um, that he's, like, one of the smartest people ever. Like, he's yeah. just so whip-sharp. But... Um, he is portrayed in this movie and every scene that he's in, he's the dumbest person in the room. I shouldn't say dumb. He's the stupidest person in the room. Except for when he's with Thor. And occasionally they decide to make Thor a little bit less with it. Mm. <sighs> yeah. It's just annoying. They do them both so dirty. Well, Joss Whedon did this. We can directly blame Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon. And it's so, it's so silly because... Um, like, we, we saw Steve in the first Avenger being able to turn, like, the Tesseract weapons around and use them. He's not unintelligent. Like... Mm. He is really smart. But I hate the part where he calls the Stars and Stripes old-fashioned and Coulson's like, people need a little old-fashioned, and I think that pretty much sums up everything you need to know about how Joss Whedon views Steve. Like, he sees him as old-fashioned. Steve is the most radical little bitch on the whole team. He is. He's an alt-right agitator. <laughs> yeah, he's so anti-government. He, like, punches Hitler in the face. Like He anyway. brings down S.H.I.E.L.D. in the next film. Like, yes! He destroys the, the government agency that made him. Or, like, that... Because he's like, they're shit. They've been... Anyway, it's just... They did him so dirty. Oh, Joss Whedon did him so dirty. His uniform in this is just completely impractical. <laughs> this guy packs a wallop. Oh, what God. about, like, all of his lines as well? Oh, uh, there's only... Ah! Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay, my, my notes for this word by word are, in quotes, this guy packs a wallop. I hate Joss Whedon so fucking much. In quotes, we need a plan of attack. When? In quotes, there's only one god, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he... He doesn't dress like that. And my note is Joss Whedon is number one on my hit list. Like you've just seen a guy summon lightning and you're like, no. I mean, like, I'm glad that he jumps out of the plane because that is a true Steve Rogers move. But like, I know, but it's just ridiculous. This guy packs a wallop. Wallop. It sounds like a radio play. He's just, what has he done with Steve? It could be like, it could be said as well. And I don't think Joss is this clever, so I'm not keeping it to him. But, like, maybe Steve is so weirdly out of character because he's having, like, massive PTSD. <laughs> because... No, I don't buy it. No, like, I know. he never talked like that when he was in the 40s. I know. Whedon's not that clever. Like, he's... But then, like, that's the thing. Cap has no sense of identity when he wakes up in the future. So maybe he's just playing the role that other people want him to be. Yeah, I Which know. is this old-fashioned... Like, whatever. He's like, they don't know the real me, and no one alive does. So. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, that hurt. There's no point trying to convince all these people like Tony who already think they know what I am. Anything else. Oh, 
Sorry. Oh, <laughs> physical pains. Yeah, I don't think Joss is that good a writer, though, so I'm not giving him credit for it. But that could be a really interesting read on it. That Cap is just like, whatever, I'll be what they want me to be because I don't want to be here in this future. Like, I, like, old Steve went down in the ice. I'll just be what they need me to be and save myself the arguing. We need to stop talking about Steve because I'm going to cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, um, let's look at this, some of these fun oh, things. Steve and Thor and underrated shit. Uh, I will... <laughs> they're just, they're, they're just, they'd be too powerful. Um, and this is why Thor isn't in Civil War either, I think, because he'd just side with Cap, no hesitation, and just wreck shop. Like, Cap's whole thing is he wants to save Bucky. Thor's entire character arc has been he's trying to save Loki. Um, like, and, you, and uh, I want to point to the comics for Civil War is this as well, which we can talk about later. But Tony is so afraid of Thor coming back to Earth and siding with Cap in the middle of Civil War that he's got, like, a little vial of Thor's DNA that he stole like a hair that he had like in the in the lab and he makes a weird cyborg clone of Thor to fight on his side and he doesn't correct anyone who's like what the fuck is that Thor on your side he's just like yep and until Ragnarok which is the cyborg clone kills somebody on Cap's team <laughs> and like is the first is the first thing that like the first superhero who was a- not unable to um just detain and drag their ass to jail like <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, yeah. So that's Thor and Cap is a very good under oh, Thor and Steve are a very good underrated friendship ship, whatever. They're just so good. They have so similar, like I don't know. They're very beefy and like jockish and Rays of Sunshine Oh no, I would not describe Steve as a ray a ray of sunshine. <laughs> no, poor Steve. He's the rain cloud and Thor is the ray of sunshine. <laughs> Well, Steve is happy during the war. Is he? Yeah, he is. He, like, gets to punch Nazis and kill a bunch of people and, like, prove how cool he is and, like... That's the thing. He's happy during the war and then now he's in the future. And now he's so miserable. And the enemy is no longer Hitler. It's, like, everyone. Himself. (laughs) No. Oh, no. Um, okay. Let's have a look. Let's have a look at Thor. Shut up, Joss He's so badly written as well. Do I look to be in a gaming mood? Do I look to be in a gaming mood? Shakespeare in the park? It's like, you just wrote Thor with such shitty dialogue so you could have that line for Tony that you dreamed up, like, three years ago. Hate him. (sighs) Hate Joss Um, Thor still cares about Loki to his own detriment. So much so. Oh. Uh, and, um, just terribly written dialogue is my main point, I guess. I wrote it twice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thor is terrible. sweet, man. He's very sweet in this as well. He's just, he's just, I think he's used for a lot of comic relief, the technology comic relief, the same way that Cap is. And also the, which is stupid, which is silly because, like, Asgardians are from a more technologically advanced society. <laughs> and I guess. I guess that's fair. If I gave a year seven student in my class a VHS tape and a VHS player and was like, use this, they'd be like, what the fuck? Oh, have you seen that video of, of um, Gen, what are they, Gen Zs using a rotary mm. phone? Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, do you know how to use a rotary phone? I do. Yeah, yeah. you got to like spin it around, yeah. let it go back, spin it around, let it go back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do. Cool. But it's that. So I guess that's the only reason Thor would be technologically bad. Um, and yeah, he just makes him so silly in this. Just 
Ugh. Mm. Anyway. So is this a movie we would recommend? Um, I just... For Natasha, you... I would say sort of, sometimes, a little bit. You have to watch it, I think, just for the team forming. Um, and at least watch it so you can be aware that, because at the time, this was peak cinema. Everyone adored it. Everyone loved it. It did everything that people wanted it to. So, like, at least we can recognize, wow, our benchmark was really that low. And I think as well to see where the characters go from here and see how they improve, to see Cap in this versus him in Winter Soldier, to see Thor in this versus Ragnarok, to see, like, them develop and keep growing. I think this is a good benchmark and a touchstone to be like, oh, Whedon wasn't as hot shit as he thought he was. That's my take on it. Yeah. Okay. Um, for Natasha, a little bit, like, some parts of her characterization I enjoyed, like, her talking about, um, like, her relationship with Hawkeye and her backstory and that kind of thing. But, like, overall, no, I would not recommend this movie. Like, no. Um, if we were going to remake it today, what would we do to improve everything? Um, actually care about all the characters, give Tony less screen time so he can develop the others, consistent writing between the first film and the sec- and, and this. <laughs> so many things. More women, give Hill her first name. That would be good. I think Maria Hill deserves the first name. Um, have this with the original Avengers lineup, which includes Ant-Man and Wasp. Hawkeye and Natasha weren't even in it at the start. Anyway. <laughs> I have a lot of a lot of recommendations. That's okay. You can voice them. This is the podcast to do that. I know. That's no, all good. I've spent enough time and energy on this film. It exists in 2012 in a very specific pocket of my mind, and I'm pretty done with it. Yeah. Uh, just one thing I wanted to mention um, towards the end. So as of mm-hmm. right now, the protests are still happening. Um, it's fantastic to see like the outpouring of support for the Black Lives Matter movement across the world. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts more than I read books and a lot of people are recommending books at the moment, but I wanted to recommend some podcasts that I listen to that are made by or hosted by black people. Mm-hmm. So, um, fake doctors, real friends, which is the scrubs podcast is hosted by Donald and Zach. And it's like one of the funniest things I've ever listened to. It's so fucking good. Um, pretty for an Aboriginal is hosted by Nakia Louie and Miranda Tapsell, who are two first nations people from, Australia, so it's actually a really good podcast. Uh, the Women of Marvel podcast, it's got a few different um, hosts. The Brown Vegan podcast with Monique Kosh, and she has um, a bunch of different guests on there, and they just talk about being vegan and all their entrepreneurship and everything. Um, Ear mm-hmm. Hustle is a really good one. It's about, it's from um, a guy in prison, um, and like, I don't really know how to describe it. It's pretty cool. It just talks about them being in prison. Um, Keep mm-hmm. It by Ira, um, Nerdificent by Ify and Danny, and Girl on Guy by Aisha Tyler. I'd like um, to show, throw a shout out in here too as well. Yeah. Um, the whole podcast itself uh, is hosted by a white woman, Maeve Marston, but there are episodes written and performed by um, Indigenous Australians. Uh, queer Stories. So if anyone wants to go and have a look, there's like 170 or so episodes. If you can scroll through, you can see um, certain creators will have a little description of what they're talking about, who they are. And there's lots of lots of great stories from queer Indigenous people. Mm. Yeah. 
So on our Twitter, we've been linking to different petitions, resources, and organizations where you can like sign and donate and learn more about how you can support the Black Lives Matter movement. So you can find them there at Marvel's Pod. Um, mm-hmm. Even though this won't air until like August or September, it's still important to support the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, in Australia in particular, where we're recording and we're based um, since the last po- inquiry into police uh, treatment of Indigenous peoples, it's been found that there's been over 400 deaths in custody, just needless violence, needless hate. And it's not like, for those who are thinking about the protests in particular, it's not like this is a problem that's only started this year. There's a long and intense history and we need to do what we can to support marginalised communities in these times. And every time and in the yeah. future. <laughs> Absolutely. We can't stop just because it stops trending. Exactly. Um, so I don't really know how to end this podcast, but like, take care of yourselves and take care of each other and do not talk to cops. Mm-hmm. Do not talk to cops. Demand mm-hmm. you see a lawyer. Um, next week we're watching Hulk. Yes. Take care, everybody, and try and stay marvellous.